Brother, good morning, church. Please open up to Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 15. The title of this sermon is How to Pray, Part 1. How to Pray, Part 1. And once you're at Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, if you are able to physically stand for the public reading of Scripture, please do. I will be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And here's what our Lord Jesus says. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not bring us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For if you forgive others their offenses, your heavenly Father will forgive you as well. But if you don't forgive others, your Father will not forgive your offenses. This is the word of God. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. God, we just come before you this morning. One, we thank you for saving us, uh, those of us who believe. We pray if there's anybody here that doesn't believe, they will believe and you'll save them too. Lord, we thank you for giving us your word. We thank you for uh, this word in particular, and we pray, Lord, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive what's in your word, that you would remove me as much as possible from this. God, that you would teach us to pray and teach us how to pray and teach us how to think as we are praying and what to focus on as we're praying. Lord, may we all be uh, edified and encouraged and convicted by your word. May you be glorified by your word. And again, may those who don't know you be justified by the hearing of your word and the believing on your gospel, God. And so we just pray all of this. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Prayer is one of the most important privileges that a believer in Jesus possesses. And this is just a fact. Yet, prayer is the one thing that probably a lot of us neglect. It's something that we leave out of our daily rhythm. If anything, a lot of us think of it as an afterthought as we're falling asleep. Or perhaps as an immediate need arises, we might utter a quick prayer. But prayer should be a much bigger part of our life. It truly should be. Prayer is the lifeblood of a believer's spiritual walk. How do I know that? It's because if you read the Gospels, you see that Jesus prayed all the time. You could see that he got up before sunrise to pray. He often would break away from the crowds and his disciples at night to get alone to pray. Before big decisions, he would pray all night. All night, he wouldn't even sleep. So if God in the flesh saw the necessity of prayer to this extent, would we be so foolish to think we know better than him? He was without sin, and yet he prayed that much. He, as a human, had a knowledge and understanding of all reality in a way far deeper than any of us have, and yet he prayed to the Father that much. And even in the Old Testament, we see this. Moses prayed, and God spared Israel. Hannah prayed, and God opened her womb and gave her, allowed her to conceive the, the prophet Samuel. Elijah prayed, and God withheld the rain from Israel for three and a half years. The same Elijah prayed again, and the rain came back. Daniel prayed to God, saying, Since the 70 years of exile have completed, please send the people back to the land. And God answered his prayer. He sent the people back and gave him detailed predictions of the future. And so when we look at all these examples, it is to our own detriment that we neglect prayer. 
Yet, a lot of us do struggle with prayer because we don't always know how to pray. A lot of times we just don't know what to pray, how to pray. And that's a fair concern. Now, some people will brazenly disagree and say, oh, no, 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 nobody needs to teach you how to pray. Nobody can tell you what right prayer is and wrong prayer because if it comes from the heart, then it's right. All God wants is this emoting from your heart. And all I got to say with my sarcastic tone there is no, that is not true. Jesus' own disciples in Luke chapter 11, verse 1 said, teacher, teach us how to pray. Right? If what we said in our heart was always right, why would they ask Jesus to teach them to pray? It's because there's a right way and a wrong way to do it. Now, in verses 5 through 8 of our text, Jesus just got done showing us two very wrong ways to pray. The first wrong way to pray is praying, is you doing your praying to get the attention of people. Right? If you're praying just so people will think you're deep or spiritual, then even if you say the right words, Jesus says you're a hypocrite. And in that case, your prayers would be useless. Second, Jesus said it's wrong to pray like unbelievers, like the pagans. Their entire understanding of God is wrong, and so their prayers are wrong. It doesn't matter if they're sincere, they are wrong. Pagan prayers are manipulative. They repeat the same words over and over as if that would make God listen. They, uh, <clears throat> they, uh, <clears throat> they try to flatter God. They assume God doesn't know what we need, that we have to remind him. They assume that God is stingy and doesn't like to give good gifts to his children. And ultimately, it's all about in an unbelieving prayer or pagan prayer. It's all about you. Your prayers are all about you trying to get what you want. How could you squeeze what you want out of God? And Jesus made it clear, that kind of prayer is wrong. And because a lot of believers don't know their Bibles, haven't studied prayer, sometimes they pray like the hypocrite, sometimes they pray like the pagan. And the problem with that is it dishonors God. It also renders our prayers as useless when we pray that way. But, as I've already said, prayer is the lifeblood of the believer. The Old Testament heroes show us this. Even more importantly, Jesus shows us this. So, if prayer is that important, then we need to know how to pray. And we also need to know how not to pray. And Jesus, again, told us how not to pray. This morning, he starts to show us how to pray. Now, historically, Christians have called this text the Lord's Prayer. Why? Well, because Jesus is the Lord, and he's telling us what to pray. He's teaching us how to pray. But I do think it's better in our minds if we call it the disciples' prayer. And the reason for that is Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. This isn't necessarily how Jesus would pray. I mean, a lot of the stuff he could pray here, but could Jesus pray, Father, forgive me of my sins? No, he was sinless. So this is a prayer that he's teaching us how to pray. And so it is the disciples' prayer. It's important not only that we pray, but that we pray in the right way. And that's why he's teaching us this. Now, the point of the text will tell us really what the right way is. Like, like why must we pray in the right way? Well, simply put, praying in the right way, it glorifies God. Faithful prayer glorifies God. That is what this text is all about. Faithful prayer glorifies God, and that is reason enough for us to pray the right way. Don't you want to glorify God? If you do, then pray the right way. But this begs the question, how can we pray faithfully? Jesus teaches us how to pray faithfully by directing us toward two focuses of prayer. 
Now, if you look at this, this disciples' prayer closely, there are six things, six petitions we're asking for. But you could divide these into two broad focuses or foci if we're going to act like we could speak Latin. So here's the thing. The first focus, the first focus is about God. It's about God, God's honor, and the future. Okay? The second focus is about us and our needs. Okay? And so the first three petitions are God, God's honor, and the future. The second three petitions are us and our needs and, and our desire for protection and all that kind of stuff, right? And so this morning, we're only getting through the first focus. We're going to be talking about God, God's honor, and really praying for the future because that's what this is all about. Now, before we start to look at it, I do want to quickly remind us where we are in the text and give some important additional information about this particular prayer that Jesus teaches us. So by way of memory, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the most famous speech ever given in all of history. It has changed more lives than any other teaching. And what Jesus has been showing us so far is how to flourish as God's people. He told us that we are to live faithfully in this present world with our eye toward the future, right? And the way that you do that is you live according to God's law and you let your good works show the world what the kingdom of God is like. That is how we flourish. We also flourish when we practice righteousness, things like almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, okay? When we do it the right way, at least. Well, where we are at in the Sermon on the Mount is the part where he's still talking about prayer. And what's interesting is the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer. This is the exact middle of the Sermon on the Mount. I don't know if you noticed that, but if you knew the Greek and you counted all the lines before the prayer and all the lines after the prayer, this is in the very center of the Sermon on the Mount. Everything has built up to this. Everything afterwards will flow out from this. Oh, Pastor Brian corrected me. Two focal points. See, never mind. So not foci or focuses, two focal points. Thank you, Brian. But anyhow, our grammar has to be correct. So, so anyhow, what, uh, what, what Jesus is, uh, or what's happening here is we're in the, the Lord's Prayer or the Disciples' Prayer, um, and it's in the middle. And if you think about it, if you read the Sermon on the Mount straight through, this kind of seems abrupt. Like he's telling you how to give alms, like really don't give alms to be seen. And then he just said, don't pray to be seen. And if you skip forward, he's going to say, don't fast in order to be seen. But before he goes from prayer to fasting, he breaks the flow and gives us this. And he does that on purpose because again, this is the bullseye of the Sermon on the Mount. It is the most important part. It's how to pray, but also it contains all the theology of the rest of the sermon. Now, I alluded a moment ago to the idea that, that Jesus is answering our need as disciples, right? We need to know how to pray. In ancient Israel, whenever a disciple attached themselves to a rabbi, they would always ask the rabbi to teach them how to pray. Well, we are Jesus' disciples. He is our rabbi. And so he is teaching us how to pray. Now, if you were to look at the very common Jewish prayers of the first century, What's interesting is a lot of what Jesus gives us in this prayer is exactly what the Jews were already praying at that time. Their prayers were awesome in the first century. Last time I mentioned there was a, a prayer called the Amida, which was 18 petitions, and they would pray it three times a day. There was also a set of petitions called the Kaddish, 
And those actually match the first three petitions of the Lord's Prayer very, very close. And so I just say all that. And then, of course, the other petitions you can find in the, the Amida. So what I'm saying is the Lord's Prayer wasn't against Jewish prayers back then. It was actually in the flow of how they prayed. But it is worth saying it is different in three crucial ways. First, it's different in the way we address God. We're going to address God with a family term that would have been unthinkable to people back then. Second way it's different is Jesus' prayer is shorter. It is a lot shorter than the typical Jewish prayer. It summarizes what those prayers would say in a much more concise way. And then third, Jesus focuses a lot more on the end times. Much of this prayer is wrapped up in Jesus' return, as we will see as, as I go further through it. Now, the early church understood that this was to be our own prayer. In fact, there's a late first century document called the Didache. might be an early second century document. People debate it. But they quote this prayer from Matthew and say that the church should pray this three times a day. So just like the Jews would pray the Amida three times a day, this was meant to replace that for the believer. Right? It covers a lot of the same stuff, but in a way more powerful way. And again, that shouldn't surprise us, because not only is Jesus a rabbi teaching us to pray, but he's the Messiah. So whatever he teaches us is going to be way better than what regular rabbis were able to teach about prayer. So with all that background information, let's get into this prayer. Let's look at what Jesus has to teach us about prayer. We'll look at the first focal point, which is a focus on God, God's honor, and the future. Now, Jesus begins in the first part of verse 9, if you look at it with me. He says, therefore, you should pray like this. Now, a couple things should be pointed out. First, he begins with the word therefore, which ties it back to verses 7 and 8. In verses 7 and 8, he said, don't pray like the pagans. And then he described how they prayed. Then he says, therefore, pray like this. In other words, don't pray like that. Pray like this instead. That's why my last sermon was titled, How Not to Pray. This one's titled, How to Pray. Now, the second thing we should know is what Jesus means when he says, you should pray like this. What does he mean by that? Because there are two ways it could be understood. It can either mean pray exactly like this, use these exact words and only these words, or it can mean use this prayer as a model. It doesn't have to be word for word, but instead it's a template. And then since it's a template, you could add words, you could add other uh, requests to this as needed. You can make it your own. So, which is it? Well, we know Catholics and and, and a lot of others like that uh, pray it word for word. You know, part of their rosary is to pray this, I believe, six times. They say Hail Mary 52, but this six, I I don't get it. But the belief is you pray it word for word. I doubt that is what Jesus means by this. In fact, I know that's not what he means. He means this to be a model or a template. How do I know? Well, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus teaches this prayer again, a second time, to his disciples. It is very helpful on your own time to read the prayer in Luke 11 and the prayer in Matthew 6 side by side for comparison. If you do, you'll notice a couple things. First, it's clear they're the same prayer, but he changes the wording. He leaves out a couple lines in Luke. He abbreviates other lines. Listen, some people think because they're similar, this, Jesus must have only taught this prayer once and these two accounts are disagreeing with each other. No, 
Any good teacher is going to teach important lessons more than once. And when you look at Luke 11 and you look at Matthew 6, these are two entirely different situations, occasions, and times. So Jesus is teaching the same prayer at least two different times to his disciples. And in these two occasions, he changes up the words. So if this is meant to be prayed word for word, why would he change up the words? He's showing you that it's a model, it's a template. Furthermore, he says, pray like this. If he wanted you to pray word for word, he would say, pray this, and then he would give the prayer. If he says, pray like this, it means it's not word for word, but it's like it. It's similar. So this prayer is not meant for you to mindlessly repeat like the pagans mindlessly repeat their prayers. This is a model to be our guide and to learn from. So he is giving us a template. Nevertheless, we need to pray, though. We need to pray for the things that Jesus prayed for. It doesn't have to be the exact same words, but it does have to be the same things. If Jesus is going out of his way to give us this model, then it means that the, that the way that Jesus puts the model together, it matters. It matters. It means we need to pay attention to the six things he's telling us to pray for. What kind of things is he telling us to ask for? We have to look at that. Furthermore, we need to look at the order in which he taught us to pray these things. Do you think it's by accident that the first three petitions are all about God and that the second three petitions are about us? You think that's an accident? No, he ordered it that way on purpose. What does that tell you about prayer? What should be first on your mind when you're approaching God in prayer? God should be first on your mind. When we pray, God should be the first thing on our mind. We are supposed to go to God for our needs, but Jesus is making it clear that's not how we begin our prayer. We don't begin with our needs, we begin with God. Okay, we start with our Lord. And so, let's look at the first petition. Jesus says in the second half of verse nine, he says, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Now, it is totally fitting that this is how we are supposed to begin our prayers. Every single word is packed with meaning. Our prayer, if you notice, should begin with our Father in heaven or something like that. Before he even gets to the petition that God's name be honored is holy, he first starts with how do we even address God? And that's important. Our Father in heaven. I'm going to take these words in order because, again, they're all packed with meaning. Notice that the first word is not my, it's our. Did you catch that? Right? This is a corporate prayer. We're supposed to be praying like this together. God isn't just my father. He's our father. He's the father of a people. Listen, Christianity is inherently communal. We are part of a body. We are members of one another. Jesus didn't just call you. He didn't just call me. He called us. And we have to keep that in mind. He called a body of disciples. That means our life is not supposed to be entirely private or individualistic. If you're introverted, you got to get over it because we're part of a body. The most important thing about you is something you share with a countless multitudes of others. And that's God is our father. That's the most important thing about us. Therefore, these petitions that Jesus is, is teaching us, they're not just matters that concern one of us. They concern all of us. Now, that doesn't mean you can't pray this kind of prayer by yourself. I think we should every single day. 
But what it does mean is that while we pray by ourselves, remember that ultimately your relationship with God is not one where you are by yourself. Okay? Your relationship with God is one where you are part of the people. We are all in this together, so we should pray like that. We should pray while we're praying for ourselves. We should also pray for the needs of the rest of the body. We should pray as if we, again, are part of a body of disciples. So our, very important word there. Now, the next word is the most profound of all. We're to pray our Father. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this. Listen, not everyone in the world can call God their Father. Yes, all people could relate to God as creatures of the Creator, but only some people get to actually be God's children. And it's always through adoption. Now, Israel in the Old Testament was collectively called God's son. So it was very common for groups of Jews to pray to God as their father corporately, as a whole. But I'm telling you now, there is a difference between that and what Jesus is saying here. And I'm going to come back to that because it's a huge difference. But first, I want to plainly state the truth about God as father. There is only one true son of God, and that is Jesus Jesus is truly the Son of God. Jesus calls God my Father, and he does so in a way that none of us can. You read the Gospel of John, he says things about his Father that we cannot say, okay? So he, in a sense, is the unique Son of God. Jesus, from all eternity, is from the Father and with the Father and one with the Father. It's that simple. For the Father to be the father, he always had to have the son, right? So what that tells us then is that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, has always existed as the eternal son of the father, okay? So in that sense, he's the son. We are not the son of God like that. Only he is. But then 2,000 years ago, he adds humanity to himself, and now he's the son of God in two different senses, but still they're both unique to him. See, in Psalm 2, God tells David and his sons that they would be God's son. Today, I become your father and you are my son. And ultimately, that's about the Messiah. So the Messiah as a human is a unique son of God. Nobody else is the son of God in a human way like the Messiah. So in two ways, Jesus alone is the son and could call God my father in a way that that we can't. Okay? Now, Why does the eternal son of God become the Messiah, the human Messiah, that son of God? He does this because it's part of his rescue mission to save us. Humanity is a fallen race. We are a race condemned because of sin. Therefore, we are separated from God. The only thing that he owes us is wrath. God owes us wrath. But God became a man so that he could save humans from every nation, tribe, and tongue. This is the gospel. By God taking on our human nature and paying our infinite debt of sin on the cross, it makes it to where now his gift of salvation not only forgives us, not only makes us righteous, it does those things, but even more importantly than that, it unites us with Jesus. The union with Jesus is one of the most important things about us. We are united with Jesus on the basis of our shared humanity with him. See, we're born in union with Adam. We share Adam's nature. We are 
in union with Adam. Jesus comes as the head of a new humanity. When we turn from our sins and we believe on him, we're taken out of that old humanity, and by virtue of us sharing a human nature with Jesus, we are now in union with Jesus, the man, the new head of this new humanity. Now, I want you to think about that. We are in union with Jesus. Why? Because we share humanity. Jesus is in union with the Father because he shares divinity. Think about that. So Jesus is in unity with the Father because they share divinity. We're in union with Jesus because we share his humanity. And because we are united to him via his humanity, and yet he's united to the Father through his divinity, he brings us into fellowship through, with the Father through that union. I know it's kind of deep when you think about it, but that's what the scripture teaches us. And so when Jesus unites us with the Father, we become sons of God by virtue of our union with Jesus. See, he's the true son. He's the unique son. But through him, we who are orphans are now adopted as sons. And so because of that, we can now call God our Father. And he is our Father. Now, one thing we need to understand is in the ancient world, when someone was adopted, they were not second-class family members. I know that happens sometimes in, in our world today, but back then, if you're adopted, you are fully equal. You are treated as if you were exactly the same as the biological children. You receive the same inheritance. You don't get a, a lesser inheritance. So I want you to think of that. Jesus is the true son of God by virtue of his divinity, and as the Messiah, the whole universe is promised to him. He will rule everything. It's his to, to rule over and reign over, and yet... Since we are united with him and adopted because of him, we who are not sons of God by nature are now treated by the Father as if we are sons of God by nature. It's crazy in a good way. It's amazing. Proof of this can be found in the book of Revelation. I'll share it with you in a second. Remember, Psalm 2 is the one that declares the Messiah would be the Son of God. Psalm 2 also declares that he will rule the world, all the nations, with an iron scepter. Right? I want you to look what Jesus says to us, because that's what God says to Jesus in Psalm 2. Look what Jesus says about us in Revelation chapter 2, verses 26 through 28. It says this, Jesus says, The one who conquers and who keeps my works to the end, I will give him authority over the nations. And he's, he's quoting Psalm 2 here. And he will rule them with an iron scepter, and he will shatter them like pottery, just as I have received this from the Father. Now, did you catch the end of that? Just as I have received from the Father. So we receive what the Father gave to Jesus. Why? Because as adopted heirs, we are not second class. We get the same inheritance. And what blows my mind even more is Jesus intensifies this in the next chapter. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, he says, To the one who conquers, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. I mean, if you think about that one, that's going to just scramble your mind. But remember, the reason why it's even possible is Jesus shares divinity with the Father. Therefore, he shares the Father's throne. And yet, because we share humanity with Jesus, we get to sit down with Jesus on that same throne. So when we pray the words, our Father, see this all going somewhere. When we pray the words, our Father, it has an even greater sense than it meant for the ancient Israelites. Yes, in Exodus 4.22, God says, Israel is my firstborn son. And as such, because they are, they point to the greater reality of Jesus as the eternal son. 
Okay? They point to the greater reality that when Messiah comes and we are united with him, this levels up our sonship. This takes what it means to be a son to a level that the Old Testament could never imagine. So when we say our father, it means so much more, so much more. Furthermore, one more thing about this. Israel would pray to God and say, Avinu, our father, which sounds similar to what we're saying here, okay? But Jesus is saying something different here, actually. When he teaches this prayer in Luke 11, he actually uses a different Jewish word than Avinu, or our father. And most of you know this. He uses the word Abba. Abba. What's the difference? Abba is the word for daddy. It's what a loving child calls his father. Now, as grown-ups, we normally don't call our fathers daddy or papa. We just, it seems weird. We call them dad or sir, you know. But when we were kids, we'd stumble and trip over our own feet and put our arms out and be like, dad, dad, goo goo gaga, you know. And then they would tenderly pick us up and embrace us, right? There is no more intimate relationship than a child in that kind of dependence that could go to this one who's greater than him and be like, Papa, and then be picked up and no greater love than a father picking that child up and embracing him. And Jesus is telling us that's who the father is to us now. That's what he called the father. He addresses him as Abba, and he's telling us to do the same. And if you never had that experience and never had a father like that, let me tell you this, Jesus is telling you God is that to you. God is your daddy, okay? And so this is, this is different. This is different than what the Jews were used to. See, they have no problem with Israel as a whole calling God our father. But if an individual calls God daddy, that was a problem. And in the Gospel of John, they will try to stone Jesus for that. Even Paul, who was raised in rabbinic Judaism, he understood Avinu, our father for Israel, but he understands that Abba takes it to the next level. Look what he writes in Romans chapter 8, verses 15 and 16. He says, For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Instead, you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies together with our spirit that we are God's children. The ability to call God Abba is something that only comes by adoption and only by the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, living inside of us. This is a privilege that true Christians enjoy, and it's a privilege that was impossible before the coming of Jesus. Now, I know that's a lot of doctrine, right? I share all that doctrine with you because faithful prayer glorifies God. And faithful prayer, first and foremost, recognizes that God is our Abba. And we got to know what that means and how significant it is that he is our daddy, our Abba. Our relationship with God is that tender and that close, and that should affect your prayers. However, we might be tempted to take that information of God being our, our papa, our daddy. We might take that information and we might foolishly approach God with less respect because of it. We might think, well, if I'm a son, then I don't need to treat God with awe and reverence. After all, now that I'm a grown-up, I don't treat my own father with reverence. I approach him as an equal. Well, listen, that's crazy talk when you're talking about God. Keep in mind one thing. God the Father is not a mere human like our fathers. So the next words Jesus says helps correct this tendency that some of us have. He says, our Father in heaven. Okay, that is meant to remind us of who God is. Where is God? 
He's in heaven. Where are you? You're on earth. He's up there. You're down here. He fills the whole universe and cannot be contained in any place, yet you're contained in your little spatial coordinates of your little body, right? He's everywhere. You're right here. He's eternal. You're not. He's unmade or uncreated. You are made. He has no beginning. You had a beginning. His knowledge is infinite. Your knowledge is lame. He's all-powerful. You're weak. Need I keep going? I can. He's God. You're human. He's the creator. You're the creature. He's independent of all things. You're dependent on a trillion things outside of yourself. Most of all, you're dependent on him. So don't forget, he is our father, yes, but he is our father in heaven. He is not the same as your human father. Okay? The fact that he's in heaven makes all the difference in the world. A couple of uh, helpful reminders for us. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 12, 28 and 29 says this. It says, therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful. By it, we may serve God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Don't you forget that. Yes, he is your father, but approach him with reverence and awe because he's a consuming fire. He's in heaven, you're on earth. As Psalm 33 says in verses 13 and 14, the Lord looks down from heaven, he observes everyone, he gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. That's who he is. Okay, so let us not forget that. Now this first line where we address God is the most important line in this whole prayer. Because the rest of the prayer depends on it. And what do I mean by that? Well, why pray at all if God is not the almighty creator of heaven? That wouldn't make any sense. Why pray at all if God's not your father? In other words, prayer only makes sense if God has the power to answer prayer and if you have the relationship with God to where he will answer prayer. Without those two things, why are you praying? What, you waste your time. So our father in heaven, most important words in this. Well, Establishing who God is, now that that's there and it frames the whole thing, Jesus gets to the first petition. He says, our Father in heaven, your name be honored as holy. Now, older translations like the King James says, hallowed be your name, which does sound very poetic and it, and it rolls off the tongue. But what does it mean, hallowed be your name? It means your name be honored as holy. That's why we got newer translations. To, it just says it in, in just how we talk today. Okay, so our first petition to God is that his name be honored as holy. In heaven, angels are covering their eyes when they are in the presence of his glory and they can't help but shout, holy, 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 which is how in Hebrew you would say, holy, holier, holiest, God is infinitely holy. That's what the angels are saying up there. Now, what does it mean for God to be holy? We need to understand that because this is what we're praying, that his name be honored as holy. There's two kinds of holiness. First is purity. God is absolutely pure. There is no evil in him. There's not a shred of sin anywhere near him. And we as his children, we are called to imitate that holiness, right? Be holy because I am holy. That is a type of holiness we're supposed to, to imitate. But there's a second kind of holiness that we cannot imitate. It is God's majestic holiness. This speaks of God being absolutely different from all things. He is in a class of his own. He's transcendent, which means he is entirely beyond the universe. Yet he's imminent, which means he fills the whole universe, but can't be contained by it. There's no one like God. 
There's no power like his, no authority like his, no glory or brilliance like his. He dwells in unapproachable light. You know, unbelievers often complain, if I could see God, then I would believe in him. <laughs> Listen, they don't know what they are saying. If God appeared in his glory and power, they would disintegrate before him. His glory would obliterate their sinful and mortal flesh. You know, the prophet Isaiah received just a glimpse of God. And when he got that glimpse, he saw angels shouting, holy, again and again, as I said, right? But Isaiah has a different response from them because he knows who he is as sinful man. Let me first tell you what he saw. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 through 3 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on high, or I saw the Lord seated on a high and lofty throne, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphim were standing above him. They each had six wings. With two, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. With two, they flew. And one called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of armies. His glory fills the whole earth. Now, that's how they respond, covering their face and shouting, Holy. How does Isaiah respond? Isaiah 6, 5, then I said, woe is me, I am ruined, for I am ruined because I'm a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips, and because my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of armies. See, Isaiah sees God, he's like, I'm done for, I've seen the Lord of glory, I'm a sinner, I live among sinners. See, that scene captures both ideas of God's holiness. His sheer brilliance and power has the angels covering their faces as they're crying holy, as they see his glory fill the whole earth. But Isaiah sees that, he's terrified because he remembers that God's purity, that purity holiness is mixed with this power, this majestic holiness. And that realization should be the scariest thing for humans like us, for people with unclean lips. So when Jesus is telling us how to pray, the first thing he is telling us is remember that God is our Father, remember that he's in heaven, okay, but also you, believer, you need to be concerned about the honor of his name, about the holiness of his name, the fame of his name. We are to pray, the first thing he's telling us to pray is God, your quote name, be honored as holy. All over the world, people use God's name in vain. All over the world, they use God's name to cuss. All over the world, they mock him. They look at all creation and they deny their creator. When in reality, and we were singing about it with our first song this morning, in reality, all creation actually does nothing but shout glory. It always shouts glory to God. The birds of the air with their beautiful songs and their colorful feathers, they shout glory to the hand that made them. The oceans, the lakes, the rivers, and the majestic mountains in the backdrop of it, they all scream glory continually to the Most High. The gigantic universe filled with billions of galaxies and trillions of stars, they all cry this. They're crying that if you think we display glory, imagine how much greater the glory is of the one who made us. And the earth itself cries out glory. It is the perfect size with the perfect tilt, rotating at the perfect speed, resting at the perfect distance from the perfect sun with water regulated by a perfectly sized moon. Everything is fine tailored to such perfection so that there may be life. And all of this, all of this says glory, glory, glory. All of this says of God, holy, holy, holy. Everything that exists does this. 
Yet all those things I just mentioned, they all pale in comparison to one more thing that God created. After he created all that, there was one thing he created as the pinnacle. You know what that is? He created us. He created beings, a creature in his own image that could display his glory in a way far greater than the rest of creation. And yet it is that very creature and only that creature made in his image that refuses to glorify his name. That is the reality of it. Okay, It is the creature made in his image that refuses to treat his name as holy. Everything else declares his holiness except us. We alone, his image bearers, are the ones that should glorify him most, and yet we're the ones who treat his name like garbage. But I want you to know something, what Isaiah showed us. In heaven, this is impossible. Angels cover their faces. Now, those angels exist in in moral purity. They are always, all the time, in awe of God. But on earth, billions cry out, where's this God? It's crazy. Billions on earth bow before created things and worship them rather than the real God. And that is not right. So what's my point? When you start praying, you likely, I know I I would do this at times, you likely jump right into what matters most to you. You pray for family, finances, health, protection from the things that, that you fear. And of course, Jesus will tell us in the last three petitions, we should pray for those things. But by Jesus praying this petition first, he's telling you that if you are God's child, then shouldn't your first thought be about what God deserves? Shouldn't your first thought in prayer not be what we want, but first be about God's very honor? Should not the first thing we ask that God would do is cause his name to be honored all over the earth? Is not his name being honored all over the earth worth more than all the things that we need for ourselves? It is. It is infinitely worth more than all the things we need for ourselves. You see, what Jesus is doing here is he's helping us frame our minds right when it comes to prayer. God is not our genie in a bottle. He's our father, but he's also the sovereign king of the universe. And billions ignore him. When we pray that his name would be treated holy in all the earth, We need to actually think about that. What are we actually praying? We're praying at least three things that I could think of. First, we are praying that we as his children, that we would treat his name as holy. First thought before we get to what we need is, God, may we honor your name as holy. Listen, every time we sin, we do the opposite. Yet thanks be to God, his faithful love endures forever. And he keeps forgiving us because of Christ. But because of that, We should want to honor his name as holy. We should want that more than all of our other desires. Lord, before I ask anything else, (coughs) please have my life show your holiness. We should want that more than anything. We are asking when we pray this, that God would make him our top priority, okay? That our top priority is his name, the fame of his name and his glory. Now, the second thing this prayer is asking is we are praying that the Lord would send workers out to the harvest so that more people would hear the gospel and believe the gospel. Because if more people all over the world believe the gospel, then more people are glorifying his name, right? So if we're praying that his name be honored as holy, we're praying for world missions. But we also want his name to be honored as holy in our own community. So we're praying for evangelism. What we're doing is we're praying that we ourselves would do our part to tell people about Jesus. But let's be real. Why don't we? We don't evangelize because we're scared. We let that fear shut our mouths 
because we're not accustomed to thinking first about the glory of God's name. And I'm telling you, that's how we fix this. See, we don't think about how the unbelief of our neighbors or family or coworkers actually casts God's name in the mud as they worship other things. We don't think about how they are dishonoring his name. And so because we're not thinking about that, we do nothing to rectify it. But if we start beginning all of our prayers every single day with a heartfelt prayer that we truly believe that we want God's name to be honored, we want it to be honored as holy, then we will begin to want that as much, if not more, than all the other things we ask for. It will become of first importance to us. And listen, if this becomes of first importance to us, if it's always on our mind, you will start doing something about it. Because let me tell you something I know about people. When something's important to us, it drives our action. We start doing something about it. Again, we ignore the fame of God's name because we're forgetting that our first priority and our thought and feelings and everything should be the glory of God's name. Once that is the most important thing to us, you will start opening your mouth. And so here's, here's my point. My point is our transformation into faithful kingdom witnesses does not begin with evangelism classes. It doesn't begin with a degree from seminary. It begins by changing the way we pray. That is where it starts. If we pray differently, we will function differently. And then the third thing we are asking when we say, Lord, may your name be honored as holy, it's we're asking that Jesus returns. Just about every commentator agrees that this prayer is eschatological. That's just a fancy word that means end times. See, when Jesus returns, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, both willingly and unwillingly. The entire universe will be forced to bow before his glory. And then those who rejected him will be cast out of the new universe and they will be punished forever. Yet we who worshiped God through Jesus, we will be the ones who fill a new heaven and a new earth and we will rule it with Jesus as I shared verses earlier. It will be like heaven. Heaven will come down to earth and God's name will be honored all the time just like it is in heaven. It will never be dishonored. So fundamentally, what we are asking when we pray this is we are asking for God to end this present evil age. This present evil age is where rebellion against God is allowed to exist. We are asking him with this prayer to bring the perfect age where sin and death are completely gone and that God's name is always treated as holy. We are supposed to be praying, loved ones, for the perfect age to come every day. It's the first part of our prayer. If you don't want the perfect age to come today because you have some unfulfilled wish in this present world, then think about it. You're putting that wish above the glory of God's name. We have a word for that, idolatry. Idolatry. Our greatest desire should be the return of Christ. And that's why our greatest daily cry should be, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord, not just for our salvation, but so that nobody will ever dishonor your name again. That should be so important to us. So that's how we start our prayers. The next petition is entirely related to it. It builds off of it. Look at the first part of verse 10. Jesus says, your kingdom come. Now, Jesus 
If you've been reading the Gospels and paying attention, he speaks of the kingdom in a way that could be confusing to people sometimes. At times, he says the kingdom is at hand. Other times, he says the kingdom is in your midst. But then to Pontius Pilate, he says the kingdom isn't even of this world, right? And then here he's telling us that kingdom will come. You know, pray that the kingdom come. But in the Beatitudes, he says the kingdom is there. It's, it's ours. It's already ours. The poor in spirit and the persecuted, he says theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? But then right here, he's telling the same people, the poor in spirit and the persecuted, pray that the kingdom comes, that it will come, as if it's not yet here. So what's going on here? Why all this confusing talk about the kingdom? Well, I've talked about this before, so I won't spend a lot of time on it. The kingdom was inaugurated when Jesus came the first time. What inauguration means is there were parts of it that began. Sin was atoned for, righteousness began to fill the earth as Jesus' righteousness is imputed to everyone who believes all over the earth, so that causes righteousness to fill the earth. The Holy Spirit was poured out on all believers. Those are kingdom end time promises, and we have them right now, so the kingdom's here. But then there's parts of the kingdom that aren't here. Sin still exists. Death still exists. Israel is still scattered to the four winds. The nations still rage and refuse to kiss the sun. The world still kills Christians. Just think of what happened to the Nigerian Christians on Christmas Day. The world hates Jews. Just turn on the news. That becomes obvious. No Jews, no news, right? And, and, and so pretty much we clearly see there's, there's aspects of the kingdom that are not here. The resurrection hasn't happened yet. Now we know the resurrection started. The resurrection began Okay, um, it began with Jesus. He came out of that tomb with his resurrection body. But we're the harvest. He's the first fruits, we're the harvest. It hasn't happened for us yet. Again, that's an aspect of the kingdom. So whenever the kingdom of God is mentioned in scripture, you need to look at the context and see if that verse is speaking about the kingdom inaugurated, meaning the kingdom, the parts of it that are here right now, or is it speaking about the kingdom consummated, the parts that aren't here, the future parts? People who only want to see the kingdom as future, they ignore all the verses about it in the present. But those who want to see it as already fully here, they ignore the ones that talk about it in the future. So we need to look at context. This passage is talking about the future, clear as day, right? It's talking about what does not exist in the world right now. It's talking about the resurrection. It's talking about Jesus sitting on his glorious throne in Jerusalem and judging the nations in the valley of Jehoshaphat. It's talking about the fullness of the Gentiles coming in and then the salvation of Israel. Think back to the Beatitudes. The first and last Beatitude say that the kingdom of heaven is ours, present tense, but then the six Beatitudes in between all gave future promises. We who mourn will be, future, will be comforted. We will inherit the earth. We will be shown mercy. We will be filled fully with righteousness. We will, in, we will receive our inheritance as the sons of God and we will see God with our own eyes. Those six things are not happening yet, but they will. And so those are all future realities. What it means for the kingdom to be ours right now is that one day we will have the kingdom where all those future promises are ours. Again, we call that the olam haba, the perfect age to come. Okay, that's what we're praying for here. Now, some people do believe that this prayer, that God's kingdom come, they believe it's a prayer that we will win the world for Christ, that we're praying for the kingdom to expand like the mustard seed and to become the tree that fills the whole earth. 
Listen, that is how the kingdom works in the present evil age. That's how it works, um, you know, in the inaugurated kingdom. But that's not what this prayer is asking for. In the Greek, this word, this verb to come, erkomai, it is in, um, this is going to be the only technical jargon I throw at you. It's in the aorist tense in a non-indicative mood. And if you don't know what that means, what is wrong with you? No, I'm just kidding. Um, All it means for an aorist tense to be in a non-indicative mood is it means it is never something that happens over time. It's never something that starts and then grows. It is always an instantaneous, complete act that happens all at once in an instant. Now, for you eggheads out there that want to sound even smarter than you already are, you could say, oh, this is an aspectival use of the aorist tense. And all that means is it goes back to, to aspect theory that all this is doing is communicating that we are praying that the kingdom comes in completion in an instant all at once, that it break in instantly and that we get all these promises we've been waiting for. Now, that relates to the first petition, because if the kingdom comes in fullness, then God's name will be honored as holy everywhere. When Jesus comes back and we got a new heaven and a new earth and all that stuff, God's name will be honored everywhere as holy, okay? Now, I want us to think about this for for just another moment. Before praying for your wants and needs in this world, Jesus first wants your mind on the world to come. Pastor Josh was talking about this in the last song that we sang. He wants our mind focused on the world to come. Before you ask for what you need right now, he wants you to ask for what God has promised you in the future. That's what he wants your mind to be on. Why? Because ultimately you need that more than you need anything else. No matter how much food God gives you right now, you will die eventually. No matter how many finances he gives you now, rust and moths will eat away all that you store up. No matter how big of a family God gives you right now, you will have to say goodbye to all of them at some point. But if God gives you the kingdom and if he gives it to you today in its fullness, then you will never die, never be hungry, your treasure will never rust, and you will never say goodbye again. He is trying to reorient your mind to the eternal things first. Because once you do that, then it puts the temporary things we need and that we're praying for in much better perspective. They don't become everything to us. They become means to get us to that end. But when we're not thinking about the world to come, these temporary things, that's our whole life. That's our whole focus. And it distracts us from what our focus should be. Okay, and and, and I'll get to that. So anyway, this then brings us to the third and last petition of this first focal point. Just like the second petition adds context for the first, namely God's name being honored happens when the kingdom comes, right? The third petition does the same. The third petition says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So this is asking that God's will be done here, but not just that his will be done here, it be done here exactly like it is where? In heaven. And so that that gives us a big clue there, very big clue. And just one little thing before I get to that clue. This phrase, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is the exact center of the Lord's Prayer. This is the very center line in the whole Sermon on the Mount. So if there was a bullseye on this dartboard that Jesus wants all of our eyes to fall on, it's this, your will, God, be done on earth as it is done in heaven. Exact center. So we should definitely pay special attention to this petition. Okay, again, we're asking that God's will be done. That is the heart of a true disciple. We should always be like, God, may your will be done. 
Now, coming back to this phrase, just as it is in heaven, lets you know that this is not yet happening. Okay, his will does not happen here like it does up there. Now, I do have to give a a little bit of explanation here because God's will is a very complicated subject in scripture and theologians don't make it any easier. They overcomplicate it, but I'll try to simplify it. There's at least that, that I could think of three aspects to God's will and we have to differentiate between them to know which will Jesus is talking about here. Okay, first you have God's decreative will. That just means All that he decrees will come to pass. That talks about everything that happens in history. That's all part of God's decree. He decreed it in eternity past, and it's going to happen. Now, how human freedom and how sin works with that, it is very complicated. I think our minds can't actually handle the answer. So we're called to think with two hands. We know that God has decreed all that will come to pass. He's sovereign, but we know that we are morally responsible for everything we do. We just got to hold those two in, in, in both hands, okay? That's God's ultimate decreative will. But then second, you have God's moral will. This is where God expresses his moral commands. His moral will does not always come to pass. You want proof? He commanded Pharaoh, let my people go. Now, eventually Pharaoh did, but did he let him go on the first time he was commanded to? No, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. Now, interestingly, that's God's moral will, but God told Moses, by the way, I'm gonna harden his heart so that he doesn't, so that I can then judge Egypt. That's part of God's decreative will. So it it gets very complicated when you start thinking about the will of God. It was more important that Egypt resist for a time so that God could display his glory and his wrath as he judged Egypt to paint a picture of the final judgment to come and to paint a picture of the final salvation to come. God got more glory that way. So when we talk about God's moral will, we're talking about every command in the Bible should be followed all the time. But we look around the world, are they being followed all the time? All over the world, people are disobeying God's commands. And then the third kind of will is God's inclinational will. This is where he says, I desire that all would come to repentance. And yet in his ultimate will, he has decided that some will choose to come for repentance, some will choose not to. And that's ultimately how it all falls down. Now, God is an infinite being. We are not, so we can't put this all together. We could simply look at what the scripture says and say, okay, he's God, we're not. That's how it works. But the reason why I bring that all up is keeping these distinctions in mind is what helps you understand what we're praying for with this third petition. We are praying that God's will happen on earth exactly like it does in heaven. So we're not talking about the decreative will. We're talking about the moral and inclinational will. Let me ask you this. In heaven right now, does anyone disobey God's moral commands? No. So when we are praying for a day when God's moral, so we are praying for a day when God's moral will happens on earth as it does in heaven. And and let's think about the inclinational will. Does God desire people in heaven to do the right thing, but then still permits them to do the wrong thing? Does that ever happen in heaven? No. No, in heaven, all the angels and all the souls of all the saved, they do what is right all the time. That is what it is like for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is what we're praying for. So we have to ask ourselves, when will it be the case that everyone on earth does everything according to God's moral and inclinational will? When does that happen? Perfect age to come. When Jesus returns and we all have resurrection bodies. Now, it is true, though, that as we pray this, 
we should in our hearts also be asking God to help us do his will even right now, right? But we know we're going to fail. How do we know we're going to fail? Later in the prayer, he tells us to ask for forgiveness, okay? So yes, we want God to teach us to do his will now, but we also know, God, forgive me as I have forgiven others, right? But here's the thing. A day is coming, praise God, when we will never fail again. That day is coming. On that day, God's will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven. And I want you to think about this. Our goal is to bring the gospel to the whole world, make disciples of as many people as God will allow us. But even if we did that, God's will will not be done on earth as it is done in heaven until the perfect age to come. How do I know that? I was uh, doing a thought experiment, okay? Bear with me for a second. I've been a Christian for 28 years, gone to multiple seminaries, I've preached, I've been a pastor for some time, I've preached through a couple books of the Bible, certified biblical counselor, so some people, because they don't know me well, think I'm a mature guy, right? Um, But here's the thing, let's say everybody in the world, all 8 billion plus people, instantly became a Christian, and all were instantly made to be at, at where I'm at right now, in my walk. Would God's will still be done on earth? No, I sin all the stinking time, okay? Every day, every day there's commands he's told me to do that I don't do. And every day there's things he's told me I better not do that I do. And I hate it. I hate it. Now multiply that by 8 billion people. So even if everybody on earth was a 28-year Christian who's been to school and preaches and all that, his will still would not be done on earth as it is done in heaven because in heaven nobody sins, Nobody disobeys, okay? And so what we are praying for is for it to be like it will when Jesus returns. We are praying that heaven comes to earth. And when we think of the next three petitions, the ones I'll get to next time, it makes sense that we ask for this first. It makes sense that we think about the future first. Give me my daily bread. Why? Because in this world, we starve without it. Forgive me of my sins. Why? Because I sin all the time. Protect me from Satan. That's the last petition. Why? Because right now he's stronger than I am. And the spiritual war chews me up and spits me out. So every day in this present evil age, I need to beg for food, forgiveness, and protection. And there's other things I should be praying for as well. Why? Why Why is it this way? Well, simply put, it's because God, your will, is not being done on earth as it is in heaven. Satan prowls around like a lion devouring people because your kingdom has not fully come. I sin every day, and because of that, your name is not honored as holy. And then when you add that to all the unbelievers who sin, even worse, again, God's name is not holy. And I'm part of the problem with that. Lord, in this world, I mourn because life hurts. I hunger for righteousness because I hate my sin. I have to be a peacemaker because the nations rage. I have to show mercy because this world is merciless. But Lord, you promised that a day is coming where I will be comforted, where I will see you with my eyes, and that death would be no more, and the curse would be no more. I want that. And as I wait for that day, yes, God, give me my daily bread, forgive me of my sins, and please protect me from evil. That is how Jesus has put this prayer together. He's teaching us through this prayer that when we have our hearts properly oriented toward God first and then ourselves second, then our greatest desire and what we pray for more fervently than anything else 
is the perfect age to come, which is perfectly described by John in Revelation 21 verse Verses one through four. If you want to know what to pray, one way to start your prayers off, maybe you could read this passage every day and, and pray it in your own words. Here is what John says in Revelation 21, verses one through four. He says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city and the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God is dwelling with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's ultimately what we're praying for in these first three petitions. And the new Jerusalem coming out of heaven and coming to earth, that is picturing the dimensions of heaven and the new earth now merging, becoming one, where we see God just like angels in heaven see him, but we see him on earth everywhere. And again, no more death, no more pain, resurrection bodies that can't sin. That's what we should be praying for first and foremost. And then we pray for those other things that we need in light of that day to come. See, our prayers, when we think this way, they, they will mature. And they become us asking God for the things we need to faithfully serve him as we're patiently waiting for that day. Our prayers will make us also start to think of ways to expand God's kingdom, even now through evangelism and ministries of mercy. We start thinking, wait, how else can we honor his name as holy? How else can we bring more people into the kingdom? How else can we have his will even a little more be done as we wait for that day to come? Well, we need forgiveness. We need our daily bread. We need protection from Satan, but we also need to be busy telling people about Jesus. We need to be busy helping people with their earthly needs, and that's what we've been called to do. In fact, the, way, the one way to think about this, and I know this goes against that old saying, but the old saying's wrong. If we pray this way, we will become so heavenly-minded that we finally become earthly good. So it is my prayer that we all learn to pray in a faithful way, that we don't just hear this stuff and then go back to doing it the way we've been doing it if we haven't been doing it like this. Okay, that, that we, this changes the way we pray starting today. Jesus has given us plenty in the first half of this model prayer. Faithful prayer glorifies God. And I think with these first three petitions, we can all see why. Now, there's a lot more that can be said, and that will wait until next week when I get to the petitions that we need for the here and now as we live in this this rough world. But for now, may we all be prayer warriors that pray this kind of prayer. May we seek first the kingdom of God. May we seek the fame of God's name. May that always be the most important thing to us. May we be people who always grow in obedience and grow in our doing of his will. And may this be our prayer all the time. Whether you pray three times a day like the Jews or once a day or all throughout the day, may, regardless of how you do it, may we be people who remember God, remember God's honor, and have our mind fixed on the future promises that God has in store for us. That is what we need to be praying about. Now, if there's any unbelievers here, I'm just gonna make this real simple. You, you've heard a lot today. You've heard about how um, we have this glorious future coming our way. You've also heard about how believers have this relationship with God where we could call him daddy or Abba, right? That's something that no unbeliever has. Why? Because an unbeliever is still in their sins and God is a consuming fire, as the text said. 
right? And so if, if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you, are not, if you have not turned away from your sins and believed in Jesus, then you're not united with Jesus through his humanity, and therefore you're not united to the Father, okay? Because it's only through Jesus that we can come to the Father, and hopefully all that stuff I explained earlier tells you why Jesus is the only way for salvation. You can never do it by good works because you've sinned too many times, right? It's only by grace alone, a gift given to us, offered to us by God alone. It's only received by faith alone. You turn from your sins, you surrender to Jesus as your Lord, and if you do, you'll be forgiven of all your sins because he paid your debt for you. You'll be given the credit of all of his righteousness because he lived the perfect life, and then you will instantly be put in union with the Father. You will become an adopted child of God and an heir of all these promises. But if you decide to shake your fist at him and say no and be one of the billions that refuses to honor his name, then one day you will stand before his throne of judgment and you will answer for it. We don't want that to happen to you. We'd rather you be saved. So we're gonna pray and uh, get ready for the Lord's Supper. And while we're praying, you could pray to receive God. You could say, God, I'm turning away from my sin. I believe that Jesus is Lord. I'm surrendering my life to him. And if you do that, every sin will be forgiven and you will be an heir to all these promises. So we pray that you would do that. And for all the believers, pray that uh, we would all pray like this. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you that you're our father, that you're our papa, our daddy, but we thank you that you're the omnipotent king of the universe as well, that you are in heaven and so you are powerful enough to do what we ask, yet we are in relation with you and you love us enough to also do what we ask as long as it's in accordance with your will. Lord, please reorient our minds to where our first thought is on the fame of your name, that your name be treated as holy by us and those around us in the world. Lord, that we would eagerly want your kingdom to come because we know it means no more need for bread and forgiveness and protection, but that we'll always be with you. And Lord, we pray that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven where nobody's rebelling against you, nobody's disobeying you. Oh, what a utopia we will finally be in and that we will finally see when our hearts are cleansed and everything is cleansed. Lord, we do pray for that day. Put it at the forefront of our minds and hearts. And Lord, as we wait for that day to come, please, yes, give us our daily bread. Please, yes, forgive us of our sins. Give us tender hearts that forgive others of our sins. And Lord, guard us from our enemy who wants nothing more than to see us fall. We pray that you would get us to that glorious, <clears throat> to that glorious day. We pray all this to you, God, in Jesus' name.